0: Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisor Practice podcast by Snap Projections, episode 59. I'm your host, Pavel Bramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow Your Financial Advisor Practice today. For more information and additional content, head over to snapprojections.com podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Tim Nash. Tim is the founder of Good Investing, an investment planning firm with a focus on sustainable investing. Tim's blog, The Sustainable Economist, has inspired thousands of Canadians to invest according to their values with model portfolios to reflect different definitions of sustainable investing. Tim writes a bi-weekly column for the Toronto Star and is regularly featured in publications such as CBC's, The National, the Bloomberg's Market Call, and The and Mail. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So I was looking forward to it. I'm super excited as well. Let's jump right in. So we'll get to the definitions of sustainability and so on, but let's start with your firm. Tell me a little bit more about your firm. What do you typically do? Who do you typically serve?
1: I'm essentially a fee-for-service financial planner. I passed my CFP exam and I'm about to uh, submit my letters and all the information there, so hopefully, you know, maybe even by the time this podcast launches, I will be a, a, a have my CFP designation. Um, but really, my expertise is as an investment planner. That I don't really do a lot of the budgeting, cash flow, you know, insurance stuff like that. I'm really focused on the investment planning side, with a very specific niche when it comes to sustainable investing. And if we can get into the terms about what that means, that's great because people always are like, okay, well, what about this and what about that? So I think we'll get there. But really, my bread and butter client are people who are a little bit more on the, the impact side of things. I often talk about a spectrum of people who are financial first, who want really good financial returns, and the sustainability piece is sort of icing on the cake. And then there are people who are impact first that really care about the impact of their investments. And then whatever financial returns, if we can like beat a high interest savings account, then they're thrilled. So, you know, I tend to be a little bit more on the impact first side of the equation. And a lot of my clients are gonna be environmentalists or social justice activists, or for example, doctors, physicians, who see a lot of the impacts of these things firsthand. And they really want to invest according to their values. So most of my clients come to me knowing nothing, not even the difference between stocks and bonds. And I take them through a learning process and, and teach them about investing in ETFs and how it works and provide them with research and empower them to choose investments that align with their values and get them comfortable managing their own money using an online brokerage platform. So it's a bit of a unique model. I'm not an advisor or a broker. Uh, I'm not registered with the Ontario Securities Commission. Instead, I very much am an investment planner with a focus on, on empowerment and sustainability.
0: Perfect. We'll get to your business because there are some interesting things that you've done there and especially, you know, pricing models. So that's going to be fun. But let's go back to your early days because I always like to start with that. Your kind of entry to the, to the business, to what you're doing right now wasn't maybe typical, but so what made you become, you know, this financial planner, investment coach, as you call sometimes yourself as well, focused on socially responsible investing?
1: Yeah. So I grew up with my father in the investment industry. So I grew up around stocks and bonds, you know, was a little kid hanging out in the office after school. So I always had a very good brain for economic and finance. I studied economics and philosophy out at Dalhousie University in Halifax. The philosopher in me had a lot of issues with the economic system that I was being taught. And it really came to light in my third year, I did an exchange to New Zealand. And I learned about this idea of triple bottom line economics, people, planet, and a profit, where now all of a sudden, you know, we had these things that my economics professors had dismissed as externalities. And now for the first time, I saw that these social and environmental issues could be brought into our economic models. I went back to uh, my fourth year program full of questions and my professors didn't have the answers. So I graduated with my BA in economics and went to Sweden where I did my master's in sustainability. And this was in about 2007, 2008 before sustainability was really a buzzword. So nobody really knew what the heck I was doing, but I learned systems thinking, And I learned about, I took a course called Engineering for a Sustainable Society. So all these different green technologies. And I did my master's thesis focused on socially responsible investment. The topic of my thesis was looking at the financial materiality of ESG risks. So this idea of environmental social governance, at that, that time, we were just starting to get the research. It wasn't as built out as it is now. And we're starting to see that, oh, actually, some of these factors play a role in a company's profitability. Your listeners might be interested to learn that the the number one out of like 300, 400 indicators, the one indicator that is most correlated to financial performance is uh, gender diversity on the board of directors. So companies that have more than two women on the board of directors are much more profitable, have a way higher return on equity than companies that are all men. So, you know, really interesting, like you wouldn't think that, but it does make sense. And then, you know, really looking at it through a financial lens. I graduated in July or yeah, July of 2008, came back to Toronto, ready to take the investment world by storm and obviously graduated right into the crash. So there were just no jobs available for me. Sustainability kind of got thrown on the back burner, you know, just nobody cared about it really. And so that's when I started my own business. And my first target was looking at institutional investors, foundations, pensions, endowments. But frankly, uh, Pavel, they just weren't ready. You know, I had success with one group called the Catherine Donnelly Foundation. I helped them shift their $40 million endowment by doing a fund manager search. It was awesome. They divested from fossil fuels before the oil market crashed in 2015. I should say before it crashed for the first time. So just think about how much better financially they've done over the last little while. So, you know, I was really hopeful that a lot of foundations and you know university endowments would jump on board and need some help with this, but they just weren't ready. So I kind of struggled with that model for a couple of years. And then it was when I got an early inheritance from my grandfather, I was able to pay off my student loans. And I started thinking, how would I invest my own money And that's when I really started finding the gap in the industry that, you know, with mutual funds and just the the high fees that mutual funds have. So obviously I wanted to do ETFs. I found the couch potato portfolio and, you know, Dan Bartolotti, who I thought was just brilliant, but I looked at the companies inside and I was just like, hell no, I can't do that. So that's when I I created my blog, sustainableeconomist.com and my first model portfolio, which I called the organic couch potato portfolio. And I just started writing about it and people started reaching out to me saying, Tim, I love what you're doing, but I have no idea where to start. How do I do this? So it was very much an organic, I would say, sort of iterative process that I just started doing this kind of one-on-one investment coaching. Most of my clients didn't have a huge amount of money, so it never made sense to go full service. And I really wanted to build something that was accessible to everyone. And with this mission that now I'm on a mission to help 1 million Canadians invest intentionally. And I don't really care what those intentions are. You know, like if they are aligned with my values, great. But, you know, really for me, this is about everyone is individual, everyone is unique. So this is about making a bit of a decision about your values and deciding how you want to invest your own money. And that really that's informed a lot of my business decisions. That's why, you know, I don't have a minimum I charge on a sliding scale, which we can get into a little bit later. I put a lot of my content on the internet for free and really happy to work with advisors you know, and collaborate as much as possible that really it's about figuring out the best way, the best system for an individual to invest their own money. And then you know, what are the options that do align with their values and really whatever it takes to actually get them to move their money in this direction.
0: I want to get that in a second. So you 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 talked actually a lot of different things. I want to dig into. So we may go a lot of, to a lot of rabbit holes. But you know before we actually even get to um, talking more about your business, and by the way, this is a wonderful story starting a blog and actually organically your 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 business. I mean that creates enormously strong foundation for the business. So that's phenomenal. We'll come back to that. But let's review maybe some of the terms in this space for the listeners who may not be as familiar with this space. And because I actually mentioned in your bio, there are different definitions of sustainable investing, which probably creates a little bit of confusion. So let's start with the one term uh, I'm familiar with, social responsible investing, SRI, but there's also impact investing. Can you break this down a little bit for us and tell us what's the space right now?
1: Let me draw you the map. It's a little bit tricky and everyone's going to do it differently. So this is sort of my attempt, how I communicate it. Really the broadest umbrella to me is this notion of like sustainable investing. That's sort of my broad catch-all term, very generic area up there. As part of that SRI, socially responsible investing, this is what I would say is akin to this idea of ethical investing. And so this was the origins here in Canada. It started largely with religious communities. Uh, The Mennonites played a huge role in this, where they just refused to have, quote unquote, sin stocks inside their portfolio. So things like alcohol, tobacco, weapons, pornography, you know, and so this is the language we use, which is a strategy of socially responsible investing, is negative screens or exclusions. Now, right now, it's really an evolved, and the biggest exclusion that clients are looking for is fossil fuels. So this idea of fossil fuel divestment is a huge issue right now, and this in my mind would fall under socially responsible investing and a negative exclusion. So negative screen there. Another tenet of socially responsible investing is this idea of ESG analysis, which stands for environmental, social, governance, research and analysis. So this is the idea of looking at all companies, not just the, you know, getting rid of the nasty ones, but let's look at every sector of the economy and let's start evaluating companies on their environmental, social and governance issues. So environmental issues are gonna be things like uh, carbon emissions, pollution, uh, waste, all these different things whether the company has been fined, you know, is a big part of that. The social side is much more about labor, right? So how they're treating their employees, things about their supply chain. So are they using conflict minerals, right? Or in a lot of the agriculture, this idea of, you know, sort of subsistence farming is often, you know, a huge social issue there. And then as well, the governance side is going to be things like the board of directors, gender diversity, board independence, So, you know, a lot of these companies like Facebook, where Zuckerberg is the CEO and chair of the board, where they issue non-voting shares, where companies are dodging taxes or maybe spending a lot of money on political lobbying, you know, these are all important things for investors to understand and to know. And, you know, this is largely ignored by a lot of the traditional analysts, whereas now, you know, all the big investment firms in the world are recognizing that, oh, crap, actually this stuff does matter. And so we do need to start incorporating this ESG analysis into our decision. making. So that's now, I would say, the evolution. That's kind of, you know, whereas it started with negative screening and getting rid of sin stocks, now it's really evolved into this ESG because that is where the biggest, I would say, financial materiality links are. if we can identify companies that have less risk and that are better performers on these issues compared to their peers, then, you know, they're going to be more profitable in the long run.
0: I want to also just ask about the impact uh, investing, right? Because there is impact investing term
1: Under socially responsible investing, there is one more strategy, which is shareholder engagement, right? Which is voting your shares and pushing companies in a more sustainable direction. So this idea of socially responsible investing with kind of the negative screening, the ESG, and then the shareholder engagement, this is typically, you know, what I would refer to in my language as doing less evil. We're really, we're still trying to get market rate returns. We're investing in large global multi-billion dollar companies, but, you know, we're getting rid of the nastiest companies, either specific sectors or the ESG laggards. From there, the area that I think you're asking, that's a little more exciting is what I call doing more good. And there are different languages for this there are thematic investments in the stock market. So these would still be stocks, traditional equities like renewable energy, water infrastructure, there's an ETF link to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There are a lot of real, really cool equity products there. And then impact investing, I would specify more on the private side, not public markets. But this is going to be things like community bonds, green bonds, microfinance. Now, some of those green bonds start to touch into you know, the global bond market, that it will be a company like Apple issuing a green bond. But most of this stuff is like hyperlocal. You know, very grassroots
0: and you know, again, very, very impact focused. Perfect. Makes sense. So I really like actually how you broke this down, the evolution from, from this kind of negative screening, which is I think makes sense as a first step. Let's look at you know, all the different stocks. Let's maybe try to eliminate the you know, top five, 10, 20 percent with just but clearly are the, the worst offenders. So now, and the shift is kind of okay. Well, how do we look at more at more the positive screening? I guess the flip side of that. So let's ask the big question because I think there's a lot of still, um, you know, common myths. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, uh, just at least uh, was that you know by investing in the space but as a social responsible investments, are we sacrificing returns in our portfolio? are we maybe return neutral or are actually you know, are we improving the returns, right? You mentioned the gender uh, diversity on the boards of the, of the companies, for example. I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting attribute to focus on and uh, that's was correlated to what was the performance of the company. So, that's, so where are we at right now in, in the space in terms of returns? Because that's everybody would want to know this for sure.
1: Absolutely. So I want to be clear that I don't have the crystal ball, so I can't really talk about expected returns in the future. There is a bit of a debate right now Uh, There's a guy, uh, Ben Felix from PWL Capital, and I've been on his podcast and he and I have a bit of a debate about this because he feels that even though prices, so my argument is that there is going to be more of a preference towards ESG companies, that these companies are going to be more profitable right? Therefore, you know, and this is what we've seen over the last, I would say, 10 years, I can say, you know, without a doubt, the evidence has shown that you don't need to sacrifice financial performance. You can do at least just as well. And that most socially responsible and or ESG funds have outperformed by a little bit. You're not like shooting the lights out, but you've done a little bit better. Now, he would argue that because it's more preference-based And we are starting to see this as the large investors, pension funds, and these institutions are now catching on. As they have a bigger preference, that's going to push up share prices, that at some point these shares are going to be overvalued, which means that there's going to be more profit for the investor buying the shares that are sort of out of preference, assuming that their profitability remains the same. Now, I would argue that there's going to be a lot more government involvement that we're taking climate change more seriously, that there are going to be more sort of labor laws and that there are going to be these ESG issues, that there is going to be sort of government policy movement in the right direction, which suggests to me, like, I want to invest in the companies that are ahead of the curve. But I want to say, like, you know, the jury's still out a little bit in terms of future performance, and I'm never going to, like, promise there's going to be outperformance. That said, my portfolios have definitely done very, very well over the last little while and I would say the last little while, like five to 10 years, and then especially over the last year and even over the last three months. And a large part of this is due to the fact that, you know, we are either underweight or in many cases, zero weight fossil fuels. And the energy sector has just absolutely taken a nosedive over the last five years. So, you know, really it depends on the strategy that you're using. Obviously, if we're fossil fuel free, as energy prices have gone down and energy stocks have gone down, my portfolios have outperformed. However, if the price of, you know, if things do bounce back and there is a backup in energy, if that sector outperforms the broader markets, then my portfolios are going to underperform for that period. Obviously, I'm assuming a long term, you know, 10 year, 20 or 30 year horizon, where I think climate change is just going to become more and more and more of an issue but that uh, really you don't need to sacrifice returns at all and that there is the ability to actually you know outperform i would say just by a little bit but it's really going to depend on your strategy you know another thing is that a lot of these socially responsible or esg funds tend to be overweight in technology and healthcare right and those are just two sectors that you know especially in the rebound over the last month or so You know, if we are getting ready for a post-COVID economy, you know, technology and healthcare are very well positioned there. So, you know, I want to be clear that some of it might be a little bit due to fluke or due to like temporary things like the energy sector, how drastically it's underperformed. But really my goal with this is to earn market rates of return. If we can just get the market rate, then I'm thrilled. And so, you know, how happy am I that, you know, I think a report just came out from the Responsible Investment Association the RIA, showing that 80% of responsible investment funds outperformed their benchmark. So to me, this is just like icing on the cake that, whoa, actually, this is a way to do just as well, maybe even a little bit better, but while also, you know, feeling good about our investments, avoiding the stuff that really makes us feel bad, sort of ethically or morally, and then hopefully also carving out part of your portfolio for things that do make you feel good that basically investing in a future economy that you are going to feel really good about.
0: So that's great. So we are not sacrificing returns by uh, investing in the space and potentially, and it's sort of still, as you said, jury uh, is still out, we may actually achieve better returns over time. And the thing is, I mean, even if we basically have to wait for uh, for a long time to basically have a you know, good enough data. And I was actually surprised that when you were doing your research, your thesis, there was not a lot of data on the, about the space. And it was, you know, just over 10 years ago, that 's a well that 's a huge surprise to me personally, actually, but I think there's a lot of things that I mean we can definitely debate um, you know, whether what's what 's going to happen in the future, but I think my impression was basically that a lot of those companies, when you are actually taking more active or closer look at you know, how you run the operations you're investigating everything i mean Everything is kind of being brought to the, uh, to the forefront, and you have an opportunity to actually improve the company. So, if I was going to be betting on outperformance versus uh, underperformance, I would probably be betting on outperformance. Okay, so let's talk about a business. You mentioned that um, there is an opportunity for you to work with advisors as well, but let's maybe start with how does your business work right now? You mentioned fee for service, but how do you really approach advising and serving clients right now being fee for service?
1: I've got a very, very clear scope of work with my clients, which is really this investment planning process. I start with education. Most of my clients just do not have investment literacy. So it's really scary for people approaching this topic, approaching this area, when you don't have that context, when you don't have that education. So the first step for me is always teaching people, like, what is an ETF and how it works? So I have this little exercise where I open up the All Country World Index ETF. That's kind of my benchmark. And we just, we look at it and I go through it and I go through the geographic breakdown and the sector breakdown and, you know, the different metrics. And I break down a lot of these acronyms that as industry folk, we know, you know, the MER. Okay, great. We understand what that is, but you know, most people have no idea what that is. So, you know, uh, something like a a 12 month trailing yield, you know, no one's going to know what that is. So I go through and I explain and I teach and it's using a very practical example. From there, you know, it's really about understanding where that client is on this spectrum of sort of financial first versus impact first. And once we get a sense of where they are there, that's when I can start to put products in front of them that might align with their values. And I'll always show them three or four different products or approaches when it comes to this and help them understand the differences between them that really my business is one of trade-offs. That as we go further down that sustainability rabbit hole, you get into more and more trade-offs. Obviously, the more things you cut out, the less diversified you are. Sometimes the fees are a little bit higher with these products. Thankfully, a lot of them, new products have been coming out that are bringing the fees down. So I'm thrilled. But you know, especially if you want to go really far down the rabbit hole, sometimes the fees are higher or it might be in US dollars or you know, some other factor there. So really for me, it's important to help people understand what the trade-offs are and then to empower them to choose the approach that fits them the best. And now some clients don't sort of fit the mold. There really is no product for them. So I have developed this idea of like a custom portfolio where we can go through sector by sector. So this is where like I've come up with a vegan portfolio I've worked with an anarchist before. This is like their backup plan in case society doesn't collapse. You know, that, so you know, really for me, it's about understanding that wide range of perspectives, trying to keep things as simple as possible, but then also you know, if, if listening to their values. And if they say, Tim, no, that's no go, not one penny into this, then I need to appreciate that and come up with a solution there and really empowering them to choose the investments that line up most closely with their values. From there, doing a lot of the financial planning, things like uh, asset allocation and tax optimization, and then really holding their hand the first time they actually invest online. So I'll get them to share their screen with me so that I can see what they're seeing. And I'll show them how to use a platform like Questrade or QTrade or RBC Direct Investing, whatever platform they want to use. And I'll just walk them through the education of what's a market order versus a limit order and a bid price versus an ask price and kind of hold their hand as they invest for the first time. And that just gives people so much confidence, so much reassurance. You know, it really is scary the first time you do it. I felt it myself. So, you know, leaving that, uh, I would say, fear and anxiety is a huge value. At that point, you know, really we'll tend to meet up about six months down the road to do the first rebalancing where I teach them how to rebalance their portfolio. And my hope is that they are then comfortable doing it themselves. That said, if they need me on an ongoing basis, some of my clients will just hire me like clockwork for an hour, you know, every six months or, or every year, just to hold their hand as they rebalance their portfolio. And then, you know, obviously in, in these sort of crisis situations that we've seen, over the last couple of months, you know, make myself available for these hourly one-on-one if they do need to, to talk through something or they've got questions or concerns, you know, and really just helping them understand what's going on.
0: So let's talk about the pricing model because I found it, uh, it's actually really interesting. So you have a sliding scale, you're a fee-for-service, but there's a sliding scale in place. So can you talk about that?
1: I really struggled with this with the pricing because I looked at the market and, you know, a lot of fee-for-service financial planners, they just offer a flat rate, you know, 300 bucks to 400 bucks, you know, in that ballpark. And for me, it was just frustrating because when I started this, when I wanted to do my TFSA, I only had about $10,000 to invest. And the idea of hiring someone at 300 or $400 an hour, Meanwhile, you know, I had clients coming to me that had half a million, a million, three million dollars looking for this stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute, like they can afford to pay me more. So, you know, really what I wanted to do was to help as many people as possible. It does go back to my economic roots where I understand that sort of the the demand curve kind of slopes downward. So I want to capture as much value under that demand curve as possible. And the way I've landed is that basically on, on a sliding scale based on how much money you do have to invest. So if you've got more than $250,000 to invest, congratulations, you can afford my full fee, which is $750 an hour. That said, if you've got less than $50,000 to invest, you can afford my full fee. So uh, uh, the lowest I can charge and still be profitable is $150 per hour. Between 50K and 250K, that's when you're on my sliding scale. And the way I do it is very simply 0.3% per hour. So someone at 100K is gonna be 300 an hour at 200k is going to be 600 an hour and the way i calculated that is looking that my biggest value proposition is helping people shift from mutual funds into etfs right that that from a financial standpoint most of my clients are just getting ripped off with these fees and by moving them into etfs i can typically save my clients about 1.8% per year so since my sort of standard package is 6 hours long you know, six hours times 0.3% is 1.8. That's going to be their savings in the first year. I get those savings, and then they save those fees, those management fees every year, as long as they stay invested in the market. So really that's like the logic. I looked at the value proposition. I looked at like, okay, I want it to be accessible, but if I'm charging everyone $150 an hour, I can't make a living. So really it's sliding scale where the people at the high end of the sliding scale are effectively subsidizing the people at the low end. The people at the high end are still absolutely getting value for this, that I'm saving them more money than they're paying me, for sure, for sure. But, you know, obviously it's a higher dollar amount. And then with this sliding scale, what it does is it does give me flexibility that really, you know, if a client comes to me and they just want like a portfolio review or let's say for an advisor, you know, they want to partner with me because they have a really tricky client, then you know I've got flexibility there. We can talk about it. We can sort of negotiate an hourly rate that makes sense. But you know, it always drove me nuts this idea of like having one fixed price because I'm just I very much believe in uh, price discrimination. That you know some people can afford a higher price and some people can afford a lower price. And so you know, all the biggest companies in the world are doing this, are having these sort of variable pricing models. Why would I lock myself in? So really, it just became a challenge of communicating that. And that's why I sort of have that little story behind the the low end and kind of why it's there. And it's working. I mean, I wasn't sure how people were going to respond to it. But, you know, people respond to it pretty well.
0: Look, I think this is brilliant. I think uh, the one issue with fee-for-service is that you are always trading time for money. And that business model cannot compete with a traditional model, which is of course, of course, if you go all the way in with you know with the two and a half plus MER fees on mutual funds. I mean, that's just detrimental to the individual investor. But I think you've done something remarkable, and that's why I want to talk to you about it because and focus on that because you're basically effectively scaling, uh, are able to build a profitable business, and there's really nothing wrong charging 750 per hour or even $10,000 per hour as long as you're providing value right if, there is, if the value is there you're an expert i mean you spent 10 15 years educating yourself in the space and an hour of your time is worth it. So there's nothing wrong with that. So I think this is also interesting uh, you know, to talk about how you could become a, the, this additional trusted resource, for example, for advisors, because I know that most advisors are, and they should be, generalists, right? They kind of orchestrate and coordinate all the financial matters for their clients, but they reach out to experts. They reach out to lawyers because they're not lawyers. They reach out to accountants. They reach out, I mean, especially when we're talking about you know private family office, I mean, the number of professionals that you're dealing with is exploding. So it would be interesting to to basically talk about, you know, when you are working, for example, with advisors, if an advisor doesn't want to be educated in that space and doesn't want to spend, I don't know, 10 years learning about everything, they can bring you in as an expert, just like, like an accountant, like a, like a lawyer, for example, say And I think the interesting thing about doing that, and you can tell me, you know, uh, if if that's how you're thinking about this as well, is that advisor, because if you cannot, if you're not an expert in the space, you can't provide this value. So you have two options. Either you're not providing the value and, you know, potentially their clients will find this value on their own and maybe contact, you know, you or somebody else in the space, or you can proactively actually provide this value for for them and maybe engage you. So how do you feel about, you know, working with advisors in in this kind of model that's basically, I mean, they could use a similar pricing model and bring you in as an expert source, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for you know, a longer engagement.
1: I'm kind of struggling with this right now, Val. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I'm kind of figuring this out because it is a bit of a, a sticky wicket. Obviously, we want to be careful that as advisors, you know, I know the business really well. And the last thing I would ever want to do is step on somebody's toes. You know, and I really understand how important that client relationship is. That said, you know, I'm seeing a huge trend towards ESG and and sustainable investing, and I think that a lot of uh, firms aren't really well equipped to deal with these questions, and specifically around the intergenerational transfer of wealth, right, where it's just kind of like now we've got younger people coming in, and I think it's, you know, pushing really hard on these issues. So I'm I'm leaning towards a retainer model where it would just be basically, I would be available as needed and really to be able to work with the clients to be able to help them understand the trade-offs that are involved, but also to be able to work with the advisors to help them understand how to communicate with clients about these issues. Sadly, I have heard a lot of horror stories from clients who brought up these issues with their advisors and were laughed at or were derided or told they're, you know, they're crazy or, you know, really just not, they didn't feel heard at all in that conversation. That's causing them to switch like that advisor is losing a client because they didn't properly listen to these concerns. So, you know, really what I can do is, is teach the advisor about, you know, sort of how to communicate, what products are available, how to approach this space and, you know, find solutions that the advisor is going to like from a financial perspective and that the client is going to like from a sustainability perspective. Additionally, I can be brought in essentially as like a facilitator that if the advisor is just, if it's a very much a problematic client and they're just really struggling with this client, then I can almost be brought in as a bit of a mediator you know to really help people and, and make them feel heard that you know their passions about environmental issues or social justice issues that those are important and that those are, are necessary and, and really valid and then at the same time communicate the limitations that we have on the investment side that there's never going to be what I call like a perfectly sustainable portfolio that just doesn't exist, that there's always going to be this tension, between the financial aspect and the impact aspect. And that really it's about kind of finding that middle ground of where the client is on that area. The last thing that I can provide is that, you know, and a lot of full service advisors aren't able to discuss impact investments. So some of these more sort of private market investments like community bonds or green bonds, if they're not on the advisor platform, then the advisor just legally from a regulatory perspective can't discuss them. Whereas I'm, I have that ability. So again, what I could do is come into the client and say, you know, let's carve out part of your portfolio for microfinance or for community bonds or for these very niche, it's not going to be all your money there. Now for the, the advisor, it's not great because that would come out of their book right? They're not able to receive any commissions on this, right? So it wouldn't count towards the AUM. But again, what we would do is carve out a very small portion of it. And, you know, for the advisor to sacrifice, let's say 1% or 2% of that AUM to be able to like have a lasting and meaningful relationship with that client, I think it's totally going to be worth it. So, you know, really, I'm, I'm still trying to kind of figure that out in terms of how to position myself for industry experts if people have ideas i would love to hear them i know a lot of advisors do have budgets for you know research and for consulting and for these sort of ancillary services i'm just not sure how to go about kind of positioning myself such that i am sort of eligible for those budgets but i think you can hear just from talking to me that my approach is very collaborative like at the end of the day i don't really care how investors want to do it if they want mutual funds, or if they've got a good advisor and they want full service and that makes sense for them. Obviously, the DIY is where I've sort of found my niche because there's a big need there. But really, I want investors to invest the way that makes sense for them. And I just want to be able to facilitate and open up the dialogue around this idea of sustainable investing, doing it intentionally in a way that everybody wins.
0: I think that's a great approach. I mean, there's a lot of things that I really like about your approach. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, socially responsible investing. I mean there's a lot of emotions there could be a lot of emotions but you are deeply grounded economic principles you are very level headed about the space and you're you know I would say focused on what really matters and you understand the industry so so that's great you're a professional and expert in the space so by bringing you in actually as you pointed out there's numerous ways of, of way of, of ways of working with you and especially with for example if an advisor has clients and they're thinking about the space I mean they can bring you up just for let's say education or even as additional party to basically uh, you know, just say what, what's reasonable in this space, what's not reasonable in this space, what are, what are expectations? And that's nice to have sometimes the, the calibration from the third party, right? The other thing is, if you're an advisor and clients basically were talking about that and you have not been addressing that, but potentially, I mean, that's your, you're potentially essentially riding towards a cliff. And it may make sense for you to sacrifice a little bit of AUM even if they decide to do that, because I mean, do you want to sacrifice one or 2% or do you want to lose a client in the end, right? So that's another opportunity. And there is several components in in how we work. I mean, the first part is education. And I think a lot of advisors do a really good job on education. They just need the nitty-gritty feedback on information about products, experiences, and, and just really gets to the core of it, right? On the other hand, I think larger firms, for example, there's definitely budgets for education. and For example, you know, doing maybe a webinar to uh, 100, 200, 500 advisors and bring you in and, and basically compensate you for that time and for that engagement by basically, again, providing more value to their advisors, better, more value to their clients. So I think there are really numerous ways of working with, uh, with you. And I think hopefully, uh, you know, I hope that uh, after listening to this episode, a number of advisors who are actually thinking or maybe have suggestions even for you how this could be better positions. Maybe, uh, you know, I like this collective wisdom of crowds and uh, because, you know, it uh, tends to produce better results even at at some of the uh, isolated experts. And uh, yeah, hopefully we will uh, we'll receive interesting feedback. Maybe uh, there's, uh, there's going to be an engagement or something like this and more value created on both sides. So this is uh, really interesting and, and you know, really nice uh, business model and a lot of value to be created in the in, in this space. And as you can see, the space is growing fairly quickly. I mean, ETFs overall as, as uh, index funds are overall growing quickly as a space. But what do you find, what, like, is there anything difficult right now when it comes to working with clients? I mean, is there something that, and it's a tough question as well, because, you know, as you're building the business and, and, you know, there's a lot of things that could be difficult about, uh, about your business. There could be a lot of projects you want to work on. But is there something more difficult about, you know, your practice, apart from what we discussed then? And what have been your, some, some of your biggest challenges so far in building your practice, building your firm?
1: Definitely, I had to accept early on that the market wasn't nearly as big, that, you know, very much this is a niche offering. And although it's growing, it is still very much a niche offering. So, you know, it was really interesting being able to build something that was flexible enough to be able to like, I could make enough money, you know, to kind of get by, but then also being able to build it in a way that is scalable. As there is this sort of, I would say, tidal wave of interest that I know is coming and we're seeing it in the U.S. where the assets under management for a lot of these funds has grown by leaps and bounds over the last, you know, year or so. And whereas in Canada, they are still pretty small. And so, you know, basically being, being sort of patient there. And then from there, you know, just really trying to systematize everything that it is very much a personal relationship that I've developed and a lot of my skills are on the personality side, like letting kind of finding that balance between sort of being empathetic and being rational and, you know, and, and doing that. And so, you know, really worried about the idea of being able to replicate my model. being able to to scale it so you know it was unfortunate things were going really well before the covid crisis hit that i was uh, about to do a big event uh, called the green living show i thought that was going to give me clients for the next six months i had my plans to hire and scale and train and you know kind of really take this to the next level and then you know that got canceled it got canceled literally the night before it was right on the cusp of when things started getting shut down, when we really realized how bad this crisis was gonna get. And so, you know, now it's kind of, you know, back to sort of being patient, that I'm gonna sort of wait out this little lull and make sure that that I do have my clients, but really right now the challenge is developing my systems and procedures The analogy I'm using is that I've got, I'm like a chef that knows the recipe in my head because I've made the dish a, a million times, but now I have to actually write down the recipe so that someone else can actually cook that same dish, you know, with the same amount of love that I have. So I would say that's kind of my real challenge is the, you know, I'm building things from scratch. And that there aren't a lot of models and things that I can draw on and, you know, and steal and and here and there that that it is a, a, a bit of a new frontier for myself. So that's probably been the biggest challenge. And then from there, you know, I would say it's a challenge, but it's a nice one to have is that stand on top of all the new products that there are just so many new ESG products, ETFs coming on the market right now. You know, iShares two weeks ago came out with a new, these new ETFs that are fossil fuel free and that are very, you know, I would say quite sort of like clean on the doing less evil side. Well, simple is like any day now going to be releasing their socially responsible ETFs. I just before this, I found one, you know, it's a US dollar one, but it's an actively managed ESG ETF. There are just so many new products coming on the market that to me, keeping track of them you know, sorting through them, understanding which ones are legit doing it legitimately, which ones are just kind of greenwashing and might not be so clean when it comes to what a lot of my clients care about. So, you know, really for me it's it is being nimble that the biggest challenge has been the kind of the uncertainty and just the fact that I need to remain very nimble and flexible. And you know, I'm so glad that I didn't sort of, you know, lock myself into one specific business model early on or that I haven't, you know, had a lot of fixed costs that by keeping things very variable, you know, I've really been able to kind of roll with the punches. And really I would say, you know, the hardest thing is figuring out, you know, how I'm going to grow this thing that I'm only one person and by charging, you know, time for money, I only have so many hours in the day. You know, you get to a certain point where it's like, okay, I do need to scale this if I am going to help a million Canadians do this. So those aren't the skills that I've got, you know, scaling a company that really it's, it's, you know, I've got a lot of the, the social skills and a lot of the I would say investment skills. And I've had to learn a lot of the entrepreneurship skills
0: there's a lot of great things with what you said i mean just building systems and, and well basically writing down the recipe basically and, and making sure that somebody else can execute i think another part of building a business actually fun part for me actually personally is building those systems and seeing what you can't cannot outsource or shouldn't outsource what you need to outsource and basically doing this in a you know in a way that you can basically build to build a larger business so I think there's going to be some patient for sure. I mean, COVID is impacting a lot of industries, and what I think can help you with staying patient here is basically seeing that you know this is going to rebound. There's a lot more products. There's a lot more attention. I mean, this is going to exponentially. So it's basically uh, you know over the next couple of months we may see massive reverse in when it comes to the, basically to the current trends that are happening maybe as of today. So a couple of questions here before we wrap up. So. We mentioned right now about uh, what you're trying to optimize in your business, but uh, I want to ask also the question about, you know, what's really exciting just to, to you, like, what are some of the projects that you're really more most excited in your business right right now? And by right now, I mean over the next six to 12 months. What are some of the things that you were just basically, you had on your to-do list and you're just like, ah, if I had a little bit more time to tackle, that's what, that would be that project. Is there anything there?
1: The big thing for me, so I created my blog, SustainableEconomist.com, back in like 2010, 2011, something, when blogs were still... A thing and really I built it myself so like I turned myself into Superman and I just kind of had fun with it but like I am not a technical expert so you know the time has really come for me to update my blog and do a bit of a redesign and um, you know and really make something that that is going to be a useful resource I think a lot of people love the model portfolios and the research that I put out there so you know looking at how I can communicate that a little more effectively And then also a bit of a more professional landing space for me as an individual that I've just grown so much over the last decade and that now, you know, really getting comfortable with media and doing TV and I'm doing these like YouTube live shows every week now. And so, you know, really finding a place for a lot of that content. So the sort of working title for the project, I'm calling it timnash.com. If you go to timnash.com right now, you're in for a treat because there is a fantastic photo of another Tim Nash in the world that I'm gonna to have to negotiate with for that URL. And his website is just his photo and then tim at timnash.com. But really what I wanna do is to build out basically a new portal for all of my research, all of the, the model portfolios and my ETF databases that right now I've got on Excel spreadsheets. And I don't wanna overwhelm people with it, which is why I wanna be very deliberate about how I present the information. And then also as a place where, you know, I can promote myself as a public speaker on the more professional side. So if firms do, you know, if you want to do a webinar for your advisors or if you want to, you know, bring me on for your family office as a a third party expert or consultant, you know, really to have something that's a little bit more professional than what I've got right now and to really be able to, to continue growing sort of my own personal brand That really what I'm finding, and it it took me a while to like accept this. I'm a little bit of a a meek person. I'm the person that cringes when I hear my own voice or or see myself on video. So I've really had to get comfortable with a lot of these, you know, uh, formats. But that, you know, really it is it is me. People are hiring, you know, uh, uh, me and 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 a lot of my thoughts and ideas. And you know, I've positioned myself as this sort of thought leader. So having a web presence that is more focused sort of on me as that. Uh, leader, and then obviously serves as the portal. So that if people want the retail help, if you're a retail investor and you need help, you can go to GoodInvesting.com. But if you're looking for a public speaker, or if you're looking for a trainer, or you know, really, if you're looking for communications help, that I would say that one of my biggest skills is the ability to communicate these complex ideas in a way that retail investors actually understand. So you know, really being able to expand my consulting services. And then also to be able to uh, uh, have a resource for people that are looking for this information to save them a lot of time that they don't have to dig around through my old site, that it's just only uh you know a click or two away.
0: My prep of our interview, I've actually looked at a number of resources and in interviews. So you are an excellent speaker. So you mentioned your cringe sometimes when you listen to your own voice. I mean, I think we all do, but I think you are you are definitely a really good speaking speaker. You'll be a great resource for for um, any uh, larger firm, for example, who would uh, engage you. Right now, maybe not in, uh, you know, for a regular kind of show because you know, the social distancing and so on, but a webinar, I mean, that's a really great way of, of reaching uh, their advisors and helping uh, their clients and, and the firm at the same time. So Tim, this podcast is all about growing your practice uh, as we're closing here. Uh, Do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? If you were just going to be starting the business again, would it be leading with a blog? What would be the one uh, resource or just not resource, but just uh, one piece of advice that you would have maybe for people to grow their practices, whether it's fee-for-service or something similar to what you're doing?
1: I think the biggest thing is just listen to your clients um, that really, I wish I'd done this. I was going after the institutional market for a while and really struggling, kind of banging my head against the wall. And all the while, people kept coming up to me saying, Tim, what do I do with my own money? And it took me like probably like two years to like actually hear them. And then from there, you know, once I started listening to then just developing this iterative process, and especially as it relates to this this new area of sustainable investing and, you know, really listening to your clients that when they do bring it up, you know, often advisors just there's this urge to just dismiss it Or, you know, I think maybe it's out of their wheelhouse. So they're not really confident. So they don't want to display that. They want to remain confident. So that's why they kind of try to, you know, shove it to the side. And that really it is just the most beautiful thing in terms of a client relationship that when they're able to talk to me about, you know, I had one client whose uh, father passed away from cancer and had smoked two packs a day every day you know, and just these memories of being a kid and just that smell and everything. And so for her, it was just not one penny into tobacco and to like hear that story and to listen to that story and make her feel heard and to be like, yeah, you got it. We're going to make sure I'm going to go through and I'm going to double check and I'm going to triple like not one penny into tobacco companies. That is now a relationship that I'm going to have for life. So really my advice is just to listen, to listen to the market, to listen to your clients, you know, to really kind of, you know, be humble, to know that we're not going to get it right, right away. There is no perfect portfolio. And so really it's just about listening, making people feel heard, communicating trade-offs and that really, you know, in terms of growing that practice, you know, I would always say really that it is, it is kind of that, I take that client first mentality And so not only, you know, listen, but also open up the door to this, understand, you know, what charities are your clients involved in, you know, what missions can you support them with, you know, and that really, that's how we build relationships in this business. And so I think it's, it's, it's good business, but it's also like, that's what really brings me the most joy out of my work is seeing people thrive, not only from a financial perspective, but also understand that, you know, they're able to have the impact that is really gonna make them feel good about the situation.
0: That's a perfect piece of advice. Listen to your clients and lean into what they're saying and take action on that. And so this brings me to uh, uh, contacting you. If, uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, um, how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you, Tim?
1: There's my email, Tim, tim at Goodinvesting.com. I've got my Twitter, which I might actually be changing my handle once I get my CFP designation. I'm kind of playing with that a little bit. I am, you know, very available there. Really the easiest thing is I offer free consultations to anybody. And that could be people in the industry. That could be retail clients. Whoever you are, you can just go to my uh, website, goodinvesting.com And there's a little button that's like book, book a meeting and just absolutely anyone can book a free consultation with me. And that way we'll be able to chat. We'll be able to discuss, you know, figure out, you know, where people are at what they need help with and whether it makes sense for us to work together.
0: That's a perfect ending. We'll link it up in the show notes. So if anybody uh, wants to, Basically, take you up on your offer, free consultation, and just even talk about it without even engaging, without making any decisions, but just really get a little bit more comfortable with that. And, and hopefully, again, the opportunity here will add a lot more value to their clients. They have an opportunity to do that. So, Tim, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. That's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate if you left us a great review in iTunes, because that helps us get discovered. And if you want to get in touch with us, please email podcast at snapprojections.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next time.